Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode of Photoactive is brought to you by Luma Labs, the makers of the Luma Loop, your next favorite camera strap system. We'll have a special offer on the Luma Loop later in the show. So we're recording this episode about four weeks before Christmas, and we record at a very particular time, Jeff being eight hours earlier than I am on the other side of the world. It's 9 a.m. for him, and it's about 5 p.m. for me. Our producer and editor, Doug Adams, is on the east coast of the U.S., so it's noon for him. For me, it's dark. It's really dark. It's after five. It's pitch black out there. And I live in a village that doesn't have streetlights. So if I go out any place at night, even just like to mail a letter down on the corner, I have to take my iPhone and turn the flashlight on. It's that dark. Now, when we take photos, we're taking pictures of light. And when we get into this type of season where it's dark till a normal hour of morning when people should wake up, and it's dark very early before many people get home, and even when it's cloudy, it's relatively murky during the day, how do we take pictures? Well, we can just walk out and hope for the best. That's a good way to start. But there's actually several ways to shoot in low light. Actually, there are a lot of different ways to shoot in low light. Up here in Seattle, uh, just sort of following on what you were saying, it now gets dark at about four o'clock in the afternoon because we're, we're, we're you know pretty far north. So you may end up in a low light situation even if you didn't intend to be, especially if it's like a cloudy day. And of course, you know, we're inside more often. And so you have to deal with the relatively uh, much diminished light inside in different places. That's a very long way of saying there are many, many ways of doing it. So let's start with what your camera wants to do. Exactly. And what I wanted to say right away is that your camera is going to try and expose your pictures to the same level of light whether it's night or day, whether it's morning or evening. Try it. You go outside when it's dark and you hold your camera and you'll be blinded by the viewfinder or the LCD screen behind it because it's pushing up the light as much as it can, unless you're on manual settings. But if you let your camera do anything automatic, either shutter speed, aperture, or ISO, it's going to try and get that same level of light that it would get during the day. And 80 to 90% of the time, that's what you want, or, or that's close to what you want. But, and I'm going to probably try to reinforce this several times. It's okay to capture things that are dark because, remember, you have control over all of these settings. So don't try to just blow everything into perfect exposure. So first, let's assume you're using a traditional camera, and it needs more light in order to expose a dark image. So the answer for that is... We're going to keep the shutter open longer, let actual more amounts of light come in, and that fills up the, the, the frame, and you end up with a well-exposed image. Now, if you're hand-holding that, and especially if it's really dark, that could mean a really slow shutter speed, like 1 30th of a second, 1 15th of a second. And as I'm sure we all know, because this happens to me all the time, you end up with a blurry image because you can hold the camera relatively still, but when you're taking a long exposure like that, any little move is going to bounce everything. There is an exception. If your camera has image stabilization or if your lens has image stabilization, you can generally get a few stops slower shutter speed and still have something that's stable. The iPhone is actually quite good at that. It's image stabilization and low light. Other cameras are good depending. Uh, we, we both use Fujifilm cameras, which do not have image stabilization. 
but some of the Fujifilm lenses do. The longer, heavier lenses have image stabilization. So if you do have image stabilization, you can get maybe to a 30th of a second without too much blur, but any slower than that, and you will have blur. And that also assumes that you're pretty good at hand-holding, which I would like to say that I am, but as I get older, it seems that I'm not. So we all have our, our limitations there. Yeah. Well, so here's a tip. We'll mention tripods in a bit, but you can always lean on something to make your camera a little bit more stable. Uh, you know, let's say you're shooting with an iPhone. You're holding that camera out in front of your face, maybe at arm's length, half arm's length, and that's not stable. If you're using a normal camera with a viewfinder and you're holding the viewfinder against your face, that helps stabilize it already. And if you just lean against a wall, that helps stabilize it even more. If you place it on top of a mailbox or a car or, you know, the, the, the edge of a roof on a building or whatever, it'll be stable. So you need to think about how you're going to stabilize yourself when you're shooting in low light. That applies to, you know, even if you're not shooting a really slow shutter speed, if you are deliberately trying to shoot a little bit higher shutter speed, even in, in darkness, having that sort of stability helps. In fact, why don't we just jump in the next thing? We talked about this in a previous episode. We talked about tripods. If you have a tripod and if you're in a situation where you have a tripod, that can make all the difference. Because with a tripod, you can go to a really dark scene and set your exposure to, say, two seconds, which is a long time for a camera. And so that'll bring in a whole lot of light. And as long as your tripod is holding it steady, then that's fine. And that can be a tall tripod. That can be like a little tiny mini tripod. There are so many different options. And if you do that, you also get some interesting effects. If you're, let's say you're in a street someplace, you'll get the movement of people and cars. And that can be an effect that you might be looking for. Just the other day, I was down at Pike Place Market here in Seattle. And I was there at night. It, it was raining. I got soaked, but... That's what we do for our art, right? Um, and, and I had a tripod, and I was doing three- and five-second exposures, getting traffic in front of a bunch of neon signs and stuff. I'll put the photo in the show notes. Another option, since a tripod is quite heavy, you can get a monopod. It's like a third of a tripod, and it doesn't weigh very much. You can stick it in a backpack, sling it over your shoulder. I have one that I – an Amazon Basics monopod that has a little strap so I can just sling it over my shoulder, kind of like you know a strap on a rifle or something. You just pop that out, stick it in the ground, and you're at least stable in one axis. Now, if you then lean back against a wall, you're stable in two axes, and it's not quite as good as a tripod, but you're very close. You also have the advantage of some places will let you bring a monopod and not a tripod. There are some like public gardens and things like that where they don't want photographers with their three sticks occupying so much space. Or even like even some museums will let you bring a monopod in because it's a little more discreet. You still get that stability and you can compensate in various ways to avoid that motion blur. But just having that, that one post really makes a big difference. Yeah. And there's one other situation where I find it really useful, and regardless of lighting, is when I'm shooting macro. I find it really helpful because that enables me to have bit of something that fixes my camera in position forward and backwards, because when you're shooting macro, your focus point is relatively slim, you know, because of your depth of field, the way you're shooting. And if you sway too much, the, the focus point is going to be out of focus and you'll get a different part of the flower in focus. So having the monopod makes it a little bit easier to keep that stability. Also, often when I'm shooting flowers, I'm like, 
squatted or with one knee on the ground, so not in a very stable position. And having a monopod even helps me be more stable. Speaking of depth of field and letting in light into the into the camera sensor, if you have a fast lens, we talked about uh, the difference between lenses in an earlier episode. If you have a fast lens with a wide open aperture, something that's you know up to like f1.8, f1.4, f1.2 even, they're even now like f0.95, which sounds yeah. sort of crazy. Because they cost more than most cameras. Very fast lenses are expensive. Yeah, there, there are trade-offs. There are trade-offs to not having any money, but you've got this lens. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what's great is if you are in a, a dark environment, that is going to let in more light, even at a moderate shutter speed. Now, the disadvantage is when you're shooting wide open like that, you do have a very shallow depth of field. And so the, there are two things that, that compound this. One, you have a very small sliver of focus that you have to control. And if you're shooting something that's that's just stationary, that's not that big of a deal. If you're shooting something that's moving, you might get a person's nose in focus, but maybe not their ears, that, that shallow depth of field. And the other part is if you're in a dark environment, it's going to be harder for your camera to hit that focus because to you, it's dark. It's only when the camera starts capturing that image and recording those photons that it brightens up over over time. You were talking about when you're taking a picture of a person and getting only their nose in focus. An interesting tip if you're doing portraits of any kind is get the eyes in focus. That's what's most important. If the nose and the ears are slightly out of focus, that just doesn't matter. The eyes have to be in focus. But if you're doing this in low light, obviously it's a lot more difficult because you, you, you have to think, imagine there's a ruler coming out of your camera, like a a six-foot-long ruler. And when your lens is all the way open, you may only have a three-inch space that's going to be really crisp in focus. So th this is a big trade-off. Now, the other thing about a very wide aperture is you get that b that, that, b that background blur behind the, the object, and you may not always want that background blur, depending on what you're shooting. Another thing to remember is that not all cameras can focus well in the dark, the, the autofocus. Some cameras have a bit of light that they'll shoot out. I know my Fuji X-Pro2 does that. If it's really dark, it shoots some light out so it can focus. But even then, if you're shooting something where there's not a lot of contrast, it might not focus very well. Also, that little that little beam, that little focus beam, which you can turn on or off, in some situations, you don't want that because if it's dark and suddenly, you know, you're like piercing the darkness with, with light at people, that can be annoying. So, you know, as always, figure out what the circumstance is. Use your best judgment. Don't don't be annoying. You can definitely make low light shots with a faster lens, but... You do have to have these things in mind because, again, speaking from experience, there have been many times when I'm like, okay, I need more light, so I'm just going to open this wide up to 1.8. And then I realize that half of my things are in focus or it's, it, it's just kind of a mess. So you know, make sure that you're also checking what you're getting. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll have some more techniques for shooting in low light. Everyone needs a camera strap that is both comfortable and practical. The Luma Loop lets you carry your camera as a sling or snug to your body when you're not using it. The Luma Loop's carbon fiber sliders keep the strap secure and feature a quick release design that gets you into shooting position almost immediately. The Luma Loop's mounting hardware is custom designed so you don't have to choose between a strap or a tripod mount. Available plates let you quickly put your camera on the most popular tripods in seconds. 
All the Luma Loop materials are American-made, and the camera mounts are manufactured in-house on a 4-axis CNC machine in Portland, Oregon. Luma Labs offers a lifetime guarantee on everything they make. Photoactive listeners can get a 10% discount during December using the code PHOTOACTIVE. You'll really like this new way of carrying your camera with the Luma Loop. Go to luma-labs.com to order your next favorite camera strap system. That's luma-labs.com. So we've talked about shutter speed. We've talked about aperture and lenses. The third element of the exposure triangle is ISO, known to us old people as ASA. And this is the speed of the film or the speed of the sensor. Back in the day with film, there was a set speed for the film and Tri-X pan was 400 and Kodachrome was 64. And you knew that you needed more light or less light. But today, the cameras we have, they can go up to ISO 6400 without too much noise. So if you're in low light, you want to start fiddling around with your ISO. Now, it depends on your camera. It depends on the type of sensor, how much noise you're going to get. But one thing I find is that if I'm shooting at night, I kind of want that noise. It kind of has that sort of film noir gritty look to it that, that's actually quite nice. I'm going to do a slightly more recent back in the day and say it wasn't long ago that especially you know if you came up learning digital photography the rule of thumb was don't go too high on your ISO because it would be a noisy mess and that's one of those things that actually has stuck in my brain this is apparently the podcast of all the mistakes Jeff has made which (laughs) is you don't want to go into higher ISOs even like 800 1600 because you end up with a lot of noise now I will admit that that is probably five years out of date, but it's one of those things that just got stuck in my head. Nowadays, if you have any recent modern camera, the ISO performance is really good. And so, you know, it's it's not unheard of to shoot at, you know, 1600, 3200 ISO because, A, if you're shooting in RAW, the software can compensate for a lot of that noise like like that's just built into the raw format and b the noise is more uniform it's not as 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 noisy in terms of of color um, which would often be a problem with low light photography where you get just a whole bunch of other different colors as the sensor is trying to figure it out and just in general the the sensors are just more sensitive and can accommodate a lot of those things so if you have that that idea that oh boy you know, like don't even mess with ISO nowadays ISO is actually one of the first things to try to brighten up a scene if you're going out and it's dark you should probably start at ISO 1600 yes you shouldn't even try a lower one you should just do that and then you'll be able to adapt your shutter speed a lot easier and your aperture there are some cameras I'll try and find a link to put in the show notes of some photos of the Leica M monochrome, the camera after which I lust and which I'm hoping that one of our listeners will, with a lot of money, will like to send me for Christmas. Pictures shot with that at ISO 12,800 look like a camera five years ago at ISO 400. I mean, it's that clean. It's truly amazing what, what is done. So as you say, if you had this rule ingrained into your brain five years ago, it's hard to get rid of it. And what you need to do this weekend is go out with your camera when it's dark, put the ISO to 1600, assuming it's a camera made in the last few years, and shoot pictures and see how they look. You will see that there is a huge difference. So that brings us to artificial light. 
which is a very tiny topic that we could probably cover in a minute, right? Right. I think we need to do about eight episodes about flashes and strobes and diffusers and reflectors <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. It is very complicated. It is very complicated, but we do have some, some good rules of thumb. Well, one of the rules of thumb is use it when you've got it. If you're out in a city street at night and you want to take pictures of people, you know, street photography, get them under a street light, get them in front of a a pizzeria where you've got neon light coming out into the street. What's really interesting about that is you're going to get so much more contrast between the, the subjects that are lit up and the background, which is going to be dark, and it's going to be much more striking than it would during the day. That is a great point. Because the first thing I thought of when we said artificial light, I was thinking uh, strobes and, and modifiers and, and softboxes and all of that. And what's important to remember is to see your scene, be aware of what's going on, and be aware of the light, which is a general concept for photo all photography. But take advantage of those things where you may have an interesting scene behind but there's no available light. Well, you know, you move somebody two feet to the left and maybe there's like some reflected uh, street light or what have you. And so, you know, yes, absolutely start with what you have there. Also look for reflections. Look for puddles that are reflecting lights, neon lights. Look for reflections off windows and cars and things like that. And then you may need to augment it with artificial light. And so a couple of things to keep in mind. One, you may have a camera that has a little pop-up flash, or your iPhone has a flash. This is one of those, again, going back to things you learn years ago that may or may not apply. I think it's still relevant to say, if you can avoid using that pop-up flash, just keep it down. Because what you're going to do is you're going to illuminate the scene, but it's going to give you that that washed out, hey, I just shot this with a pop-up flash. Sometimes that might be a look that you're looking for. But if there's any way to get that light off of the top of your camera, either by having you know a handheld strobe that, that is communicating wirelessly, or even one of the best things to do, if you have an external strobe, even if you mount it on top of your camera, if you're inside especially, point it up so that the light is bouncing off of the ceiling or bouncing off of a surface. That makes a huge difference in the way the flash and the way the light travels. Yes, there's something called the inverse square law, which means that the amount of light is inversely a square root of the distance or something to do like that. It's the same thing as like when you're 10 feet away from a speaker, it sounds half as loud as when you're five feet away from it. It's sort of like that. So try and point your flash in different directions. Now, here's something that's really cool that you might want to do. If you're outside and you want to take a portrait of someone and you've got an iPhone or any other phone with a flashlight, turn the flashlight on it, have them hold it in their hand and point it up to their face. Not too low because then you'll get the sort of raccoon eye shadows, but have them hold their hand out and get some of the light on their face from one side. That light will be enough to make a difference. It won't be a harsh light like an actual flash, but it will be enough to, to illuminate a person's face, even in the dark. So we have the the light from your phone. We also know that your phone is going to want to superexpose everything. Is there anything that we can do while we're taking a picture with the phone? Because what's what's great about the iPhone is it wants to do all of this automatically, but it can be hard to sort of override that. 
We've discussed this in the past, but one thing to bring up is as you're shooting, you have that, that control where you can tap to focus and then drag the little exposure compensation, little sun icon that's next to the focus point. Feel free to bring that down if the phone is, is trying to do too much. Yes, and do multiple photos. Try a little bit underexposed, a little bit overexposed, and, and see how it comes out. Don't just try one photo. But I want to say something really important now. We've been talking about how to get photos to look light enough when it's dark, but maybe you should take photos that actually look dark. Your camera's going to try and get an optimal exposure. If you adjust your exposure compensation, as Jeff said, you can slide that little thing down on the iPhone screen, and most other cameras have a dial or a setting to lower the exposure. Why not make a photo that looks like it's night? You don't want to make every photo sort of night for day. That was a reference to a, a filmmaking technique called day for night, where what they do is they want to shoot something at night and they'll stop it down several stops to make it look dark. And you can always tell when they do this because you see shadows, even though it's kind of dark and it looks like it's night, you see shadows even when there's no street lights. So you can do the same thing, do night for day, lower your exposure at night and not, don't let the camera force it to be too bright. Another method of adding light where there isn't any in the scene is something we discussed in an earlier episode, uh, and that's HDR, high dynamic range. That's the method of bracketing different exposures and combining them in software to make a better exposed image. Now, what's interesting about this is you can absolutely do it manually, but the iPhone XS and the iPhone 10 is doing that automatically. A lot of the, the smart HDR capability, the phone is grabbing a whole bunch of different exposures and blending them together. And this is something that's taken hold in the entire smartphone camera uh, category. The Pixel 3, a brand new Android phone, has this night sight mode. And it's basically doing the same thing. It's taking something like 15 different exposures in a third of a second and it's taking them at different exposure levels and combining them. And what's interesting is, together with AI software, they are producing really good-looking images in dark, dark, dark situations. Uh, we'll find some links and put them in the show notes, but they're, you know, people who are saying, I shot this in a almost pitch-black room, and you're looking at the image, and it looks like, you know, it, it doesn't look like it's a bright room, but you have lots of detail, lots of color fidelity. It's really quite amazing. And so, you know, right now, if you care about Android versus iPhone and all of that, the Android really has the edge right there. I'm sure that that'll be coming uh, to the iPhone too. And Apple's going to have some special name for it, and it's going to be magical and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. The, the, the magical smart HDR night... Uh, Dark night mode. The night stupendousness. Yeah. <laughs> Dark night mode, yeah. And then lastly, we should also mention, especially if you're shooting in RAW, once you bring your photos into the Photos app or Lightroom or Luminar or pretty much anything, uh, you have a lot of control to bring up shadows, to bring up the, the, the entire exposure without having many artifacts or image degradation because all the image data is there. Okay. That's a lot about shooting in low light, and I hope that some of you will take some pictures in low light this weekend and post them in the Facebook group. And now you know everything about low light. There we go. Well, except <laughs> the whole bit about lighting, and we're definitely going to do a few episodes about lighting because it's a really, really delicate subject. 
I, I mentioned previously that I spent some time in the summer taking pictures of flowers in front of a window in my house and using reflectors and diffusers and putting different angles. And it really is something we need to learn about because we are, you know, taking pictures of light. So it's time for our snapshots. Jeff, what have you got this week? My snapshot today, speaking of lighting, is a website that you can absolutely lose several hours to and be happy that you did so. It is strobist.com, S-T-R-O-B-I-S-T. This is the site of David Hobby. He used to be a newspaper photographer and basically started this site to just share all of the lighting information that he knows. He focuses mostly on using small strobes rather than big studio type of strobes, the type of thing that you would have in a bag, because of course he would be out on assignment having to shoot various things during the day. What's great about Strobist is he has these courses, basically, Lighting 101, Lighting 102. They're not video, they're actually text. You you go and read and you look at the images. It's one of the best places to just sort of get a foundation knowledge of lighting and where to start and what gear to start. And there are even things like how to do this sort of lighting effect without going out and spending several hundred dollars on professional lights. You can go to Home Depot and get a bunch of gear that can be used for practicing. And it's a resource of information, especially if you think that off-camera lighting or strobe lighting is just this this intimidating area. Start here. It'll make you feel better about it. And how about you, Kirk? Do you have something this week? Uh, yes. Someone I follow on Instagram, his name is Grant Simon Rogers. There'll be a link in the show notes. He, in his profile, he says he is the man who flashes at trees. And I asked him how he shoots his photos. He holds his camera with one hand, and with the other hand, he has a flash mounted on a monopod. So if you look at the photos, they look like they're dark. In fact, many of them are shot maybe at night or twilight or dusk or whatever. But what he's doing is he's he's isolating different elements of grass and trees and flowers and all that with the flash. So essentially, he's doing what turns out to be low-light photos in the background with a bit that is lit up. And there's something really compelling about the way he does this, about the way he's just selecting certain items in a scene and leaving the rest dark behind it. Sometimes there's sunlight behind the scene. Some of them look like they were done at, uh, let's say, sundown. But have a look through these photos. It's an interesting way of taking pictures of nature and adjusting the light in certain ways to make it look like there's this combination of night and day. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. And don't forget to go to luma-labs.com to find your next favorite camera strap system. You'll get 10% off using the code PHOTOACTIVE. That's luma-labs.com. Until next week, thanks again for listening.